out of the sky My dreams went crashing When you said goodbye Who'd think that after all I've been to you That you and I would be through Hello and welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, so for this episode, I am... I'm actually going to combine what I originally planned to be two episodes, just because uh, there's not quite enough letters. There's 34 letters left in the in the fourth volume of the selected letters of H.P. Lovecraft, so that would have meant the next episode is going to be a little truncated. Plus, I think there's so much repetition. I, I think I'm going to talk about this set in broad terms. So it's going to cover January through June uh, 1934, so a very long period of time compared to some of the other episodes, but um, there's not that much new to talk about. I think it more or less continues the things we've been exploring uh, since we picked up the fourth volume of the Selected Letters. So I'll, I'll just kind of uh, highlight what some of those are, and um, and uh, yeah, and then we'll move on. We'll, we'll, we'll start next episode with Dreams of the Witch House, and then we're going to go through all of the remaining like Lovecraft stories, the kind of the standard the non-revisions then we'll jump in and we'll finish up the revisions and then finally get to the robert e howard uh letters that i've been teasing for quite a while and then i think we'll be done with this this series unless i find a compelling reason to to clean up um speaking of that i i still mean to do the cleanup for the philip k dick series doing the the posthumous novels doing nick and the glimmin there's of course uh, the exegesis, which I really don't want to do, but there's also letters, um, some nonfiction writing, some essays. So, I mean, it might be worth doing some cleanup on the Philip Dick series, but I'm not sure we're, you know, this is valuable for this this series and its and its purpose. I think once we get through the Robert E. Howard letters, you'll see that it kind of does form a nice coda to this entire entire series. But certainly, we want to get to the rest of the revisions; those are those are important. So anyways, what's in this final set of letters, this, the early part of uh, 1934? Well, um, you know, a lot of, of uh, you know, travel is discussed. We get more walking tours here. Uh, you know, so there's, that kind of continues. We've seen a whole lot of that. For instance, um, uh what do we have here? Oh, yeah. So, for instance, in a, in a January 31st letter to F. Lee Baldwin, which uh, he talks a lot about a lot of things in that, but he talks about, his once again, his fondness for the countryside, um, his walking tours of Providence that he, he did before getting into a discussion of the sequel for The Silver Key um, and talking about how he gets his ideas for stories. Well, but, of course, in January, Lovecraft tended to to hibernate he didn't go out on those tours but um i i will say uh in the summer of of 34 he does get on another major trip and this one is to to florida where he stays with the the he stays in the bar in robert e barlow's house it seems yeah um and and yeah um and so that's another nice trip uh, he got he got to take. Uh, he talks, as always, about the beauty of the places he visits 
its artistic styles, its cultural styles. For instance, in May, on May 22nd, 1934, he discussed with Elizabeth Tolbridge Spanish art in Florida and was kind of made a, made a point of commenting how it wasn't modernist in its style. So we got travel, uh, and especially travel to Florida in this case, but also his walking tours, which pick up again uh, in, the, in the spring of, of 34. Another thing to point out is we see lots of evidence of his continuing uh, development of friendships and his continuation of friendships with various people, his developing of uh, new friendships and continuation of olds. So, for instance, we see him writing um, F. Lee Baldwin, giving a lot of his uh, background to him because it was kind of a new, uh, a new person he was writing. We also get Dwayne Rimmel, uh, who he... He writes several letters to. He's a new person, so we get some new friends. We have a continuation of the growing friendship with Helen Sully. These letters are some of the best in the end of this volume, I think, because they really do show Lovecraft trying to connect on a personal level with this woman, talking about things like grief and loss and purpose in life and how to find meaning in this existence. When he, you know, it's a way, it's actually a voice we don't hear much from him when he talked about like cosmic horror with other people, because it's often, well, you know, we got to stick to civilization that's a way we can kind of ride out the cosmic storm both Helen Sully has a much more personal relationship and I, I want to get to that later and talk specifically about one letter he looked at so um so there's that we see him going to uh spend Christmas with the Longs and Lovemen uh, uh kind of a re-meeting of the Calum Club which is uh another evidence of his his continued connection to to other people um uh, uh, he had thinks, uh, oh, let me check here. What what else do we got? Oh, speaking of fraternity, we get another callback to the Kappa Alpha Tau fraternity, which are the cats who live near his house. He wrote about this in a letter to Clark Ashton Smith on February 11th, 1934. Uh, he starts this letter talking about the relics of Roman Britain, which has certainly been on his, in his head lately. Um, we saw it in the last episode where he started thinking more about the Roman p place in, in British culture. But uh, he, bring, he brings up this Kappa Alpha Tau fraternity, this thing he invented, this imaginary fraternity of the cats who live around his house. And he also mentions missing a cat, like a cat had gone on and he can't find that cat. And his, his type of sorrow, his kind of, there's kind of a eulogy to the lost cats there. So it's, it's nice that we end this exploration of the letters with a with a reminder of his uh, fondness for cats. Um, there's a little bit here on folklore, not a whole lot, but at least one very important letter to Margaret uh, Sylvester, who I don't think he wrote before. Uh, I don't remember it, but maybe there was one, but I think it's a new correspondent, and, I, and I, there's no other letter to her in this series. Maybe in the fifth volume there are some. But uh, I don't have that one yet. Um, so this is January 13th. And this is really kind of interesting in relation to the next story we're going to be looking at, the Dreams of the Witch House, because he talks about the folklore of Walpurgis Night, which is uh, the, day, the night before May Day. All right, so April 30th to May 1st. Uh, so it's kind of a pagan holiday that got incorporated into some Christian cultures. And Lovecraft uses it as part of Arkham's culture. Uh, he also talks about how he invented the Necronomicon. And, you know, there's there are still people who probably think of the Necronomicon as a real text that Lovecraft was just writing about or or just borrowed from from fact. 
Um, I certainly am probably, yeah, I sort of thought that when I was young, when I first was exposed to some Lovecraft stuff. Um, but what's funny is, you know, people are asking, like, is this a real book? And, and he, 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 there were several letters previously, too, where he admits, no, I made that up. <laughs> and there's all these other books that are made up. Don't take that too seriously, right? But he intermixes the Necronomicon with real kind of occult books from the early modern period and other times. So it's, it's, it's not a mistake. If you make that mistake, it doesn't mean you're stupid. It just means Lovecraft did a really good job of, of making that text feel real and drawn from life. So we got a lot more of him complaining about fiction writing um, and the Weird Tales market, which has been a continuing theme throughout this um, set. For instance, uh, in letters to F. Lee Baldwin, on January 13th and 31st, he talks about uh, the limits of writing in something like Weird Tales as a career. He also mentions um, the, that you really should write for personal satisfaction, not for the market, which is advice he gives to many people. And he talks about the, weird, the poor pay that weird fiction writers get. Um, but he also talks about how weird fiction can reach the pinnacles of literature, calling out the turn of the screw. By, by Henry James as a great example of that. Um, now, we can't really uh, move on with talking about what I, th I think is our last uh, J. Vernon Shea letter in the whole selection, whole collection, yes. Um, this was dated uh, February 4th, 1934. Now, there may have been other Shea letters that just weren't included in the selected letters, um, but this is one that talks a lot about his childhood recollections. Uh, he doesn't totally drop the previous theme. If you pick, if you follow this conversation, I do urge if you're going to pick up the fourth volume of the selected letters, maybe the highlights are the Robert E. Howard letters. If you're not going to read like a means to freedom, look at those. But I'd also say the J. Vernon Shea letters because they really talk about some of the themes of race and civilization, uh, contemporary politics uh, to a significant degree. Um, and we see in this letter uh, the continuation of this conversation, which is going to be focused on pacifism. Now, there's a few other things in this letter, like his upbringing. And he actually gets a little bit into maybe a bit of Freudian territory, talking about sexuality and upbringing uh, a little bit here. But mainly this letter comes back down to the questions of war and peace, which Shea was challenging him on, it seems. And Lovecraft just repeats his position from before that pacifism connects to na national decline. Um, and he does, does say it's like not inevitable that human societies will, will rise or fall or, or have golden ages or whatever. It's really up to human beings to make that happen. Um, uh, he gets into justice in, at this, in the Scarborough case as well, because that was something he was talking to, to Shea a little bit earlier before uh, uh, with Four, where he made some pretty, in hindsight, comments that don't date very well on the on the case. Uh, I'll read it um, just so we can kind of end it, um, but it's a long passage. Regarding the so-called Scottsboro case, it would certainly seem as if the defense had quite a bit of evidence, though I don't see what a possession of syphilis and gonorrhea by one N-word had to do with it. These things don't destroy the inclination to ravage so far as I know. Yet all this must have been well known to jurors who, manually, who maturely brought in a verdict of guilty. It doesn't seem natural to me that well-disposed men would deliberately condemn even N-words to death if they were not strongly convinced of guilt. We must not forget that these 
Books of special pleading are compiled and colored by professional radicals and emotional idealists. Although, of course, prejudice and emotion exist on the other side as well. It would probably be better if all trials involving local prejudice were conducted by federal courts with a personnel drawn from all parts of the country, avoiding not only the sense where prejudice against the defendants exists, but those where prejudice in their favor is found. Um, now, I'm going to go on, but I want to stop here just because you hear this in terms of like criminal justice reform, even now as being a possible solution. And of course, in the civil rights movement, federal impositions, I guess, if you want to use that word, on Southern laws were, were how a lot of that was affected, right? The civil rights law said, you know, the Supreme Court said in Brown versus Board, the Civil Rights Act later said Southern states can't do certain things, right? And it was like the federal government stepping in. Um, and you hear this now with criminal justice reform, like I think Bernie Sanders, when he was running for president, had the suggestion that whenever there's a police shooting, it becomes a federal investigation, an FBI investigation or a Department of Justice investigation. I guess that's the same thing. Um, so I think, you know, Lovecraft's not wrong about this. Uh, he's probably uh, a little too kind to the all-white jury that convicted the Scarisboro um, um, defendants, though. Anyways, going on. For instance, no jury in New York Jewish radicals ought to try to accuse a be, try try a man accused of labor crimes against law and order, for those bastards would acquit a brute who had shot up dozens of innocent people if they thought he did it for the social revolution. End quote. Um, so now we see it going off the rails a little bit, where he sort of misses the point of the value of this argument. Right? He thinks uh, the reason we need federal oversight of trials is because the, the Jews would let all the labor radicals go. Um, and I, I still don't fully understand why Lovecraft is so hostile to, you know, egalitarian social movements. I guess he just thinks they're disruptive and he doesn't like the Soviets. But um, he would have benefited from a universal basic income or, 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 or writers getting a higher percentage of the, of the wealth they created from their writing. Anyways, going on. Just how the present cost celeb will come out, I don't know, but possibly some sort of commutation of sentence will occur at the last moment. However, the damn C-word, uh, C-O-O-N-S, are probably rather poor specimens anyway, so that apart from the matter of precedent, it really matters little whether they're bumped off or not. Ugh. It is curious to analyze the system of values which, in the absence of religious belief, attaches such exaggerated importance to the sanctity of human life as such and such a fluently spun abstractions of justice and kindred illusions or aesthetic concepts of course there is an artistic side to the matter needless cruelty being essentially vulgar but i suspect that much of the hysterical justice crying of radicals and ideals is simply an emotional residue from religion end quote and now i want to say the argument really really gets bottled he doesn't seem to really know what he's saying except that he's somehow offended by the violence of capital punishment and he's also somewhat offended by the people who are against capital punishment, which I don't know. He just is kind of, I think his ideology here is really muddying the water. And this is a great example of where his good ideas get clouded by his prejudice and, and that really just confuses all this. Anyways, I want to read this and I want to leave this because we're going to set Jay Vernon Shea aside and Lovecraft's letters to him. And, uh, and yeah, check it out if you want to know more about this very interesting set of letters. I guess one more thing about this is somehow he doesn't, he thinks that the racial discourse of the time is overly sentimental or, or being driven by sentiment. 
But give me a break, HPL. Like, there's a reason the NAACP was putting flags out in New York City saying, you know, a man was lynched today. Not for sentiment, not to just build up sympathy. I mean, people were being murdered. Uh, innocent people, or at least people who were under the law were innocent of any crime, at least. And many of them were across the board innocent uh, men. Uh, you know, capital punishments through an unfair brought about by an unfair criminal justice system. It's not sentiment to point this stuff out, man. It's it's actual injustice. And I don't know. I know you're dead, but come on, man. Uh, anyways. What else? Now I'm in a bad mood again. Okay. Uh, back to the travel issue in, in a letter to F. Lee Baldwin. He, he talks about his desire to go to the Pacific Northwest. I don't think he ever gets there. Um, but this letter is mostly a life history of, of Lovecraft. But he does mention wanting to go to see, um, to see that place. But speaking of his family history, in a letter to Robert E. Barlow on March 19th, uh, Lovecraft talked about... Uh, his Celtic bloodline and how he, you know, he found he found this out actually I think ten years earlier or so we talked about that in those letters when it came up and how it kind of did challenge I guess part of his his Anglo his Roman Anglo kind of identity that he's been developing for himself but he, he I guess he came to terms with it and what, I remember one letter he says as long as there's no black African blood in me I guess I can deal with it I can, uh, even even in his when he softens his racism he he's still pretty racist about it. He also in this letter mentions an old family legend, which he which he uh, spells out. Um, so what else here? Yeah, I think. Oh, one 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 I definitely want to mention here because uh, I've been kind of complaining when I first picked up. I read the I, I skimmed through these before, but I never read them systematically. And now that I did, I'm like, now we're going to hear him go on about the New Deal because this is like the period where Roosevelt gets elected. We got, um, but we don't get that right. Not until. Uh, an April 3rd to 8th letter to Robert E. Howard. Um, do we get him talking about um, politics and, and a contemporary politics? And he doesn't do it directly, but he does say some interesting things here. Um, he writes, As for the Constitution, all one may ask is whether or not our revered sacred cow of 1789, written before any of our present in economic and social conditions were dreamed of, interferes with the stern and necessary task of creating an economic order capable of giving every man a chance to earn his living. If it does not interfere with the task, then let it alone. It has its valuable points as well as many irrelevant and obsolete points. But if it does interfere with the task, the task undoubtedly demanding some governmental checks on business unforeseen in 1789, then the only thing to do is ignore or amend it. End quote. So he's basically saying the problems of the day are, are not satisfactory to the Constitution, or the Constitution is not adequate and needs to be changed. Now, of course, it really wasn't changed that much in the Roosevelt era. I think just the one amendment that overthrew the prohibition. Uh, there may have been another, but I don't think so. I think it wasn't until the 60s you had another wave of new amendments. But what is interesting is that, you know, of course, Roosevelt did run foul, afoul of the Supreme Court and had his troubles trying to get his legislation confirmed by the Supreme Court. And he had the whole court packing scheme. 
something you study in a history class. And he goes on saying, government certainly has, has a devil of a struggle ahead of it. Every move ahead in the direction of a more equitable and humane order will undoubtedly be fought tooth and nail by the blinding selfish interests of the old decaying order so that each change will have to come slowly. Moreover, there's always the well-meant protests of individuals who resent the regulation need to restore opportunity to the whole population. End quote. Now, I don't know if this letter reflects a change in Lovecraft. I mean, certainly on race issues, he seems to be one of the the well-meaning individualists or, you know, the defender of the decaying order, maybe not selfish, but certainly defender of the decaying racial order. But maybe it shows some growth. I don't know. But, it, you know, I've heard this cliche about Lovecraft that he died kind of a, a somewhat a defender of the New Deal program. I, I'm, I'm not really I'm that sure about that. But we do see him at least open to reforms here and saying the system, the conservative constitution doesn't really allow for the kind of reforms that are necessary in this society at that time. Of course, an economy in collapse. So there's actually not too much more to say. Uh, I guess we got the southern trip, right? Him going to Florida. He, he wrote in El to Elizabeth Tolbridge saying he really hopes to do it, but he doesn't think he can have the money together. And then he eventually does it. Now, speaking of that, there, he talks about his economizing, how he pays for these trips and how he, he finds cheap hotels and budgets his meal allowance each day pretty conservatively. Um, you know, so he... You, you see how he's able to afford these trips, even though he has very, very low income. Um, but uh, he talks about that actually several times in, in these later, later parts of these letters. Um, certainly money's still on his, on his mind, but he dines on a budget. So that's one of the reason he's able to do this. Um, now, one source of income for him, if however modest, was reprints of old stories. And we see Farnsworth Wright talking about reprinting uh, Arthur German which is the story, if you don't remember, about uh, a man who finds out his great-great-grandmother was an ape from Africa. Um, and that's a really kind of fascinating story, which I dug into quite deeply very early in this podcast. Um, so, yeah, I think that I think all we have to really come to finish up on here is this um, a really good letter, which I'm not going to read too much from, if at all, but I think you should go do it. If 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 you're interested, and this is uh, a June twenty eighth letter to Helen Sully, uh, nineteen thirty in nineteen thirty four, and he really talks about her apparent depression and uh, how to find meaning in life, how to find happiness, um, and there's some really really touching things in this. It's right at the end of the volume, so you can almost go right to almost the last page of this volume and find it. Um, but. He kind of is, he has some fatalistic about about this, but he thinks you should sort of embrace it. It's almost an existentialist approach, I think, to, to like f happiness is really up to you to find on your own. It's, uh, in, it's somewhat in your control. Uh, and fate is real. We're limited on what we can do. Of course, I don't think Lovecraft believes in fate strictly, but he certainly does believe in the indifferent universe. So humans aren't in control of, of what happens to them entirely. But he writes this. Um, of course, real happiness is only a rare and transient phenomenon, but when we cease to expect this extravagant extreme, we usually find it very tolerable fun, fund of mild contentment at our disposal, end quote. You know, he's talking about, yeah, life may suck, but, you know, you have the, the flowers, right, and the, the, the waterfall and, 
and the walking tours of Providence and all these kinds of things. Uh, moving on. True, people and landmarks vanish and one grows old and out of the glamorous possibilities and expectancies of life. But over against these things, there remains the fact that the world contains an almost inexhaustible store of objective beauty and potential interest in drama. All of the disposal of anyone philosophic enough to go through the process of psychological self-annihilation. To divine one's interest and attentions rationally and to get so interested in the drama of what's going on, one forgets one own part or lack of part in the environing turmoil. Those are the secrets of sensible living. We would not resent the inevitable grayness and disappointments of life so much if religion and sentimentality did not so viciously teach us to expect more. This false teaching of orthodox tradition is something which ought to be done away with, though I hope it can be disposed of without destroying other and really valuable parts of our traditional heritage. End quote. So that's a really nice sentiment, and I, I think we can all maybe learn from that. If there were more letters like this and fewer like the ones we to Vernon Shea, I think it'd be a lot more pleasant to read uh, these selected letters. But anyways, I guess that's it. I, I want to finish up. This has been a long series. Uh, it's, there's a lot of letters in the fourth volume of the selected letters, and a lot of them are quite short, and there's a lot of repetition, so I'm kind of glad to be, be done with this series. Um, but at the same time, excited to get back in, in, with a different format, a little bit more in-depth into the, the Robert E. Howard letters, which are uh, very fascinating and rewarding to read. But first, we have a whole bunch of stories to look at. Um, I believe there are just five stories. It's, it's Dreams of the Witch House, Thing on the Doorstep, um, Shadow at a Time, and Haunter in the Dark. So just four, just four letters or four stories left. Uh, so that won't take long. That'll take six episodes maybe i think the witch house i'll do two and shadow at a time at least two then we have a whole bunch of um, revisions to talk about i think there's like 19 or 20 of them uh some of them are really short though so i'll probably combine them um some are like just like one page um fragments and things so maybe another 15 episodes to cover all those revisions uh, i won't do any more than one episode i don't think uh, not like i did with the mound that's kind of a special case so yeah about 20 episodes left and then the robert e howard letters uh, so we're coming to the end of the road here um, and thank you for bearing with me as i really obnoxiously go through the writings of hp lovecraft the way i am um, I guess there's the fifth vo select volume of the selected letters, which I don't have access to. If I can get a hold of it in the U.S., I may do it. I don't know. I have notes on it. I may just go read from my notes and, and, and talk about what's in my notes, um, which will at least give you the highlights, if not the play-by-play. -play. So anyways, that's it. Any thoughts at all about any of the issues in this fourth volume? Uh, please share them with me. Leave a comment or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Thanks, as always, for listening, and I'll see you next time with uh, one of my favorite stories by Lovecraft, uh, The Dreams uh, in the Witch House. Thanks uh, again for listening. Gee, it breaks my heart to see you day after day Turning away as much as to say You've 